I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. We're going to be talking more about hepatitis because it is World Hepatitis Awareness Day. But I first wanted to remind you that we do have hopefully coming up in February, the intensive wellness retreat and conference uh, that's going to be on Carnival Cruise Lines, February 7th through 13th. To learn more, go to allceus.com slash cruise. Now to reserve your space, you need to make, they really want us pre-register um, soon. So it's important that you email me at support at allceus.com before August 1st. If you're interested in being added to our list of people uh, who tentatively are interested in going. Uh, we have to have at least 30 cabins in order to go. So that being said, addressing viral hepatitis, this again is based in part on SAMHSA tip 53. And I want you to remember that SAMHSA tip 53 was written a while ago. I believe it was 2011 and we're in 2020. Now that doesn't sound like a huge long time ago, but in terms of the development of medications and everything else, it is a very, very long time ago. In terms of counseling practices, you know, they can, they're going to stay the same generally, uh, uh, across time for the most part, but you do need to regularly, at least once a year, if you work with clients who have hepatitis, which you probably do, um, review the information on the CDC website at the very least, see what current trends are out there to slow or even cure viral hepatitis. We're going to review viral hepatitis again really quick. We'll talk about screening and evaluation and counseling approaches for people with viral hepatitis. This is a continuation of last week's class. I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to hit the highlights in the beginning just for anybody who wasn't here on Thursday, but uh, hopefully we're going to provide you a lot more information that you can do better serve your clients in a federal healthcare setting. Between 3.5 and 5.3 million people in the United States have chronic viral hepatitis. Symptoms can take decades to manifest, so many people who are infected do not seek timely treatment. It's important to remember that substance disorders do not cause, but they can exacerbate viral hepatitis. So if somebody has the virus in their system and they are engaging in behaviors like substance abuse that reduce their immunity, it can make things uh, a lot worse. As many as 90% of people who have HIV infection or um, human in immunodeficiency virus have also been infected with HBV, which is uh, hepatitis B virus. Now those H's and V's get thrown around a lot. So we need to be very careful when we talk to people because a lot of people hear H and V and they don't hear that middle letter and they start to get really out. So we do need to pay attention and educate people that yes, HIV and viral hepatitis, they're spread through bodily fluids or, you know, well, that's an overgeneralization, but, uh, but um, they are very different condition. 33% of people who are infected with HIV are co-infected with HCV, which is hepatitis C virus. Chronic hepatitis infection affects approximately 5% of psychiatric patients. So I want you to think about your caseload. And when I worked in community behavioral health, it was not uncommon to have a caseload of 50 that, that was really common. It wasn't uncommon sometimes to have a caseload upwards of 80, close to 100, but 50. So out of that 50, it wouldn't be uncommon 
to see two, maybe three people on your caseload at any one time that had hepatitis. More than 90% of infants that are infected uh, with hepatitis virus will develop a chronic hepatitis B infection, which is why it's so important for infants to get vaccinated. You know, when I was young, back in the day, uh, they didn't know about this. They didn't vaccinate us as infants. When my children were born, that was just one of those vaccinations that, you know, was kind of expected that the children got. Because it's so easy to prevent hepatitis B infection and chronic hepatitis B infection with a vaccination. Up to 50% of young children between one and five years old who are affected will develop chronic hepatitis infection. Now, chronic is the word we really want to focus on. Some people develop acute viral hepatitis, you know, of any kind, and their body can clear it and it doesn't become a chronic issue for them. But up to 50% of young children who get it and up to 90% of infants who are exposed to it do develop chronic hepatitis. And that's the one that can progress to liver problems and potentially liver cancer failure, and, you know, really bad mojo down the road. So what can we do to prevent it? You know, we know that this is a really dangerous virus. 90% of healthy adults over the age of 19 will recover from an acute hepatitis B exposure. A lot of us who work in community behavioral health um, get worried. Or if you're working in, you know, a hospital or, or something else, get worried if you get exposed to hepatitis B. Now, remember, it is transmitted in bl blood and bodily fluids. Um, and if you're using universal precautions, you're probably going to be fine. But, you know, there is that off chance that sometimes you could get exposed somehow. But it's also important if you're counseling somebody who's been exposed to remind them that 90% of healthy adults who get exposed, their body can clear it. So not to start to panic quite yet. Hepatitis C virus will spontaneously clear in 25% of the people who get it. So that's not as good, but it is a number. One in four people, their body will take care of it and it won't become a chronic issue. Now, what do we know about the liver? We keep talking about hepatitis, but we really haven't talked about what the liver does. Well, you need to love your liver. It is one of the uh, cleaners of your body. The liver breaks down toxins found in the blood and excretes them as harmless byproducts, either in your stool or it excretes it back into the blood and the blood goes through your kidneys and your kidneys get rid of it. But your liver is your one, one of your filters. And, you know, I need all the filters I can get because I don't have one on my mouth. <laughs> so I will take uh, my liver and my kidney and I will really um, embrace them. You know, that's the one thing, and I'm totally on a side note, that has always perplexed me about people who eat liver. I'm like, why would you want to eat something that is the body's um, filtration system? But there are supposedly health benefits to it. I'm a vegetarian, so it's not an issue to me, but I just found it curious. Anyhow, your liver also metabolizes drugs, alcohol, and prescription and over-the-counter medications. This is super important. If you work with a geriatric population, you know, I want you to realize that as we get older, 
our liver doesn't work as well. It starts getting a little bit sluggish, which means some drugs can may not metabolize as well in the liver, like some of your benzodiazepines, and they can build up to toxic levels in the person's body. You have similar issues if somebody has hepatitis. If that liver is not functioning well, then it's going to affect medication. And it's really important that the treating physician be aware of this, which is another reason why it is so vitally important for people to get tested for hepatitis since the majority of people, one of the stats I read said nine out of 10 people who have hepatitis don't know they have it. Well, if 90% of people don't know they have it and you know, those people are getting prescribed medications and you know, they may not be working the way they should because that person's liver is not processing them as well. Um, there are also a lot of things, you know, you've got hepatitis that you can do in order to treat your liver with tender, loving care to keep it as healthy for as long as possible. Your liver also makes cholesterol, which you think, oh, cholesterol is bad, but you also need cholesterol. Cholesterol is one of the substances from which your sex hormones are made. So if you do not have enough cholesterol, if you don't have an adequate balance, guess what's going to happen to estrotestosterone? And we know that estrogen and testosterone are integral in people's moods. So we want to make sure that that liver is, is keeping the body functioning. Um, and clotting factors is another thing that the liver makes. If you don't have enough clotting factors, your blood won't clot well, you know, and every injury is potentially a big deal. Finally, as if that wasn't enough, the liver stores sugar as glycogen. Now, remember when the HPA axis gets activated, cortisol gets dumped as well as glutamate and, and noradrenaline. But the other thing that happens when the cortisol gets dumped is it signals the liver through reactions to dump that blood glucose so you can fight or flee. And if your uh, HPA axis is signaling the liver and the liver's just not responding, then that blood glucose may not be coming out well. Um, you're also going to find out later that having hepatitis puts you at a much higher risk of developing di uh, type 2 diabetes. But So the liver stores sugar as glycogen, but it also stores fats and vitamins. So it's a powerhouse. It's kind of like your pantry that's storing a lot of things. You know, you have fat throughout your body. You know, you've got fat reserves and things like that. But the liver actually serves as kind of like a pantry or a medicine cabinet or whatever you want to call it. It's important that we make sure we take care of it. You cannot live without a liver. You can get a liver transplant, but you cannot live without a liver at all. Overview. Just, you know, I like pictures. I like charts. You know, I'm not big on prose. When you think about the different types of hepatitises, assume that's how you plural it, make it plural. Hepatitis A. Nobody is going to develop chronic hepatitis, viral hepatitis from hepatitis A. After you have it once, you do have immunity from infection. There is a vaccine available. The incubation period is two weeks to two months. And as I said, it's not chronic. Now remember this hepatitis A is transmitted through, through fecal matter. And you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, then you could be exposed to it by somebody who doesn't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. And this doesn't mean just, you know, people working in food service or you, for example. It can also mean, you know, kids are putting their hands in their diapers and in the mud and everything else. Um, 
and then touching you and then you touch your mouth. It's not hard to transmit it. So if you're not getting vaccinated, you know, you probably have already been exposed and developed some level of immunity, but it is one form of hepatitis. Hepatitis B is the one that we hear about a lot. And the one that a lot of times, if you haven't been vaccinated and you're working in healthcare, they really strongly urge you to get vaccinated. Six to 10% of people who are exposed to hepatitis B will develop a chronic infection. So remember, 90% or better will clear it themselves. Uh, but six to 10% will develop a chronic infection. Once they have, once they're infected, even if it's acute and their body clears it, they do have an immunity to it. There is a vaccine available. It's suggested for infants. And if you haven't had it, you know, if you didn't get it when you were an infant, it is still suggested to get it whenever. Is it curable? Well, about 90% of people recover from acute hepatitis. When we talk about chronic hepatitis, there are some trials out there right now and some medications that are claiming that they may be close to having a complete cure. I told you on Thursday that there was in 2019, there was some there were some Australian researchers that think they may have found a drug that may cure hepatitis B, but it hasn't cleared the FDA yet. We don't actually have it yet, but they have made these discoveries. Um, now, if you're working with somebody who has hepatitis uh, and they're having difficulty getting treatment, it is interesting to, oh, that's not the right one, um, to take a look at the trial database. And I will show you how to do some of that later at the end of class if we've got time. But, you know, this article in here talks about the upcoming pharmacological developments and what they're thinking about in terms of when a cure will exist. That's good information to have if you're working with people who have chronic hepatitis because they're going to ask you. Is there a way to cure it? And what is the prognosis? What is the course that it's going to take? We'll talk about that in a little while. Hepatitis C, unfortunately, has a much worse picture, if you want to think about that, for the development of chronic infection. 75 to 85% of people will develop chronic hep C infection. Um, there is no immunity after you're infected, and there is no vaccine available. So it's important to engage in preventative measures. The incubation period is two weeks to six months. And, you know, it's important to recognize that one of the most symptomatic or contagious times for people is two weeks before they become symptomatic. So in those two weeks before the symptoms start to show, they are shedding the virus more prolifically, I guess. 90% of people are able to cure their hepatitis C with certain medications that are out right now. Symptoms, fever. Okay, well, fever is caused by a lot of things. Fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, uh, vomiting, abdominal pain, dark urine, clay-colored bowel movements, joint pain, and jaundice. Now, I want you to just kind of look at these and go, which of these symptoms overlap with other stuff? Which of these symptoms overlap with depression, fatigue, loss of appetite, maybe some nausea, depending on the person. Dark urine may occur in people who are depressed if they are not drinking enough. Some people get super depressed and they just won't get out of bed for anything. You know, they don't want to drink anything, they don't eat anything. Um, and when we have 
super concentrated urine, it will get dark. Uh, so we do, you know, want to make sure that they recognize they need to drink more water if their urine's dark. But if they're drinking adequately and their urine is dark, then that's a symptom potentially of hepatitis. When people are depressed, they tend to experience more systemic inflammation, and that can show up in some people as joint pain. We do want to pay attention to that. Now, jaundice, that's only going to show up with hepatitis. So if you start seeing yellowing of the skin or eyes uh, in somebody or they notice it in themselves, it's really important to go get that checked out, toot sweet. Hepatitis A transmission. One third of U.S. residents have had hepatitis A, which is down 92% since the discovery of a vaccine. So, you know, one third is down a bunch. That means... Forgive my math, but that means generally two-thirds before the vaccine, two-thirds of the U.S., two out of every three people, had experienced hepatitis A and, you know, recovered from it. It's spread by oral transmission of fecal matter of a person who's infected, and it's extremely contagious. You know, it's not hard. It can survive outside of the body for several days and in water for several months. Just kind of let that sink in. Um... And, and think when you're going around, you know, where the water is, you know, if you're um, on, on uh, drinking fountains, this will give you the heebie-jeebies next time you go to a drinking fountain. You know, if somebody goes to the bathroom and they always have a drinking fountain right outside of the bathroom for some reason, but they go to the bathroom and they come outside, they don't wash their hands, and then they go to the drinking fountain and, you know, they get their germies on that. And then you come along and you decide to get, you decide to get a drink, or if they have hepatitis and somehow get it um, onto the water spigot for the uh, drinking fountain. But anyway, so drinking fountains, you know, be careful. People are most infectious during the two weeks before the onset of symptoms. Hepatitis B is spread when blood or body fluid infected with the virus enters the body of someone who's not infected. Now, this is a key thing. If you come in contact, you know, try not to, please, universal precautions. But if you come in contact of blood or bodily fluid from somebody who has hepatitis, if it doesn't get in through a cut, if it doesn't get on your mucous membranes, you know, it's not getting into your virus, into your virus, Gus, into your body. Your skin is a great protector. Now, yeah, you want to wash it off, but, you know, it isn't important to recognize that that contaminated body fluid has to get into your system somehow. Now, it can get in if you're, if you've got cuts, you know, in your mouth, if you've got bleeding gums or something, you know, that is a potential area for bacteria to enter. Now, how do we get it? A an infected mother can spread it to the baby during birth. There are procedures that doctors can take to minimize the exposure of the baby and steps that they can take post-birth to make sure the baby doesn't get it. If you have sex with an infected partner, and one of the things that really bugged me, um, soapbox warning, uh, in the tip and on in a lot of things that I read on hepatitis B transmission, is they talked a lot about um, having men having sex with men. And okay, yes, that is one group. But anytime you have sex with an infected partner and there is some sort of bodily fluid exchange, if there is an area for that um, bodily fluid to get introduced into your bloodstream, then, you know, you're potentially at risk. So it's not just men with men. It is anybody uh, who has, you know, open wounds or, you know, potentially an avenue for 
the virus to enter the system. So that, that's my little uh, soapbox there. So sex with in, any, anybody having sex with an infected partner. Sharing needles, syringes, or drug preparation equipment. If somebody's injecting themselves and then you're injecting yourself with that same needle, you know, sharing items such as toothbrushes, which is, this is where the bleeding gums thing comes in. Razors or medical equipment, like a glucose monitor with an infected person. You know, the glucose monitors that stick your finger and then you put it on a, a little tape. Well, a lot of times it just has a little, you stick your finger in a, in a compartment. So you're not using a fresh needle necessarily every time. Um, and it's important to pay attention to that. You want to make sure that you're practicing good sterile hygiene and direct contact with the blood or open sores of an infected person. Again, if it gets on you, wash it off. If you don't have breaks in skin, chances of you actually contracting hepatitis from it are like super duper minimal, unless you're like rubbing your hands on it and touching your mouth or something. So, you know, be cautious, be clean, but don't be completely panicked. Hepatitis B is not spread through food, sharing utensils, breastfeeding, kissing, handholding, coughing, or sneezing. With, you know, there are a couple of exceptions, you know, if the person you're kissing has bleeding gums and you have bleeding gums or cuts in your mouth, you know, I guess it could be possible. Transmission rate expectation is still pretty low there, but you know, just pay attention. Many people with hepatitis B don't look or feel sick. However, they can still spread the virus. Hepatitis B can survive the body, can survive outside the body, even in dried blood. Some people think that once blood's dry, it's not, you know, contaminated. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal still. It can survive in dried blood uh, outside the body for at least seven days. So hepatitis C is commonly spread by sharing needles or accidental accidental needle stick injuries or being born to a mother who has hepatitis C. Less commonly, but not completely uncommon, it's spread by contact with somebody's blood via razors or toothbrushes again. So you don't want to share razors or toothbrushes, just like in elementary school. I know my mom always said, don't share hairbrushes with people because that's how you get lice. Well, don't share razors or toothbrushes with people because that's how you spread bloodborne infections. Uh, sex, Again, if they are symptomatic and you have an avenue for that virus to get into your body, you're potentially at risk. Or getting a tattoo or body piercing in an unregulated setting. You do want to pay attention. Even, I don't know that it even happens anymore that men go and get shaved at the barbershop. I don't know. Um, but anytime a, a razor or a needle is being used, important that whoever's using it, if you're in an establishment like a, a barbershop or a tattoo parlor, that they are regulated and they're practicing excellent hygiene. Um, I didn't research it, but I would also wonder, you know, for the incidence of transmission of uh, viral hepatitis at uh, nail salons, because, you know, people get their cuticles pushed back and that can cause cracks, can bleed. You know, obviously, if they're sterilizing the equipment that they're using properly, then it's not a big deal. But, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, makes me think. Hepatitis C cannot be spread by food, water, or sharing eating utensils, hugging, kissing, holding hands, coughing, or sneezing. If you have a client with hepatitis who sneezes on you, you know, that's unpleasant. You want them to cover their nose and mouth, but you are very likely not going to have any chance or, you know, minuscule chance of contracting hepatitis C from that. 
uh, people who should be regularly tested, people who are at risk for infection by sexual exposure. And, you know, that's important to recognize if you are in a uh, non-monogamous relationship um, or you're not in a relationship at all and you happen to be having sex with, you know, multiple people whose um, hepatitis status you don't know. Uh, you are at risk for infection. So vaccination is a good idea and regular testing is a good idea. People who inject drugs, if they have HIV, if they live in a household uh, or have sexual contacts with people that have hepatitis B, it is totally possible to live very safely in a household with a member who has hepatitis B. But, you know, there are steps you need to take to, to uh, prevent the spread. People requiring immunosuppressive therapy should be regularly tested because that means their immune system isn't, you know, 100%. And if they're exposed to the virus, they're less able to clear it on their own. Hemodialysis patients, pe people with hemophilia who receive blood clotting factors, people with another form of viral hepatitis, pregnant women, and infants born to infected mothers. Pregnant women should be tested at every single pregnancy to make sure that they do not have hepatitis. If they do, as I said earlier, there are procedures that the obstetrician can take at delivery to ensure that the baby is, you know, not exposed or has minimal exposure and has the medications they need to uh, make sure that they don't develop hepatitis, but it is so important because it is so preventable. And infants that are born to infected mothers, you know, need to be tested. Even if you took all the precautions, it's a good idea to have them tested, you know, once or, or twice. And, um, or an infant that's born to a woman who didn't know she had hepatitis and, you know, so all the precautions weren't taken. Who should get vaccinated for hepatitis A and B? Remember, there's no vaccination for C all infants. You know, it's preventable and they've shown a really good safety profile. People at risk for infection by sexual exposure, um, people at risk for infection by exposure to blood, um, people who inject drugs, if you live with um, hepatitis B, healthcare and public safety workers at risk for exposure to blood or blood contaminated body fluids, people who receive hemodialysis, especially prior to, um, if any time, or if they received uh, a blood transfusion or organ transplant prior to 1992. It's a good idea to, you know, at the very least get tested. And people with diabetes, this is an interesting one, who are 19 to 59 years of age. Now that's a weird bracket right there. But they have stated in the uh, literature that for people who are over the age of 59, they need to consult their physician on the... Um, benefits and risks of getting the hepatitis vaccine at that age. International travelers who go to countries where hepatitis B is common should get vaccinated. People with hepatitis C, chronic liver infection, HIV infection, people who are in jail or prison should get vaccinated for hepatitis. So let's move on to screening and evaluation. As I said, and I can't remember what the slogan for World Hepatitis Day is, but it's something about, you know, finding the millions that haven't been identified. We need to do a better job of screening and evaluation for hepatitis because 
even if somebody has it, there are medications, hepatitis B, for example, there are medications that the person can take that will dramatically slow the progression so they can really live a very long, high quality life. We need to do a verbal screening and intake for all people. And those who are at risk should be counseled to seek medical screening. So we want to ask questions about risk factors if they've been exposed uh, to someone if they are in one of those high-risk categories. Screening is also an opportunity to educate about hepatitis. Remember what I said earlier, some people confuse hepatitis with HIV. And if you start asking them about their, uh, whether they've been tested for hepatitis, they'll say yes, because they had an HIV test, not a HBV or an HCV. So you see where all those H's and V's kind of cause a problem. So we do want to clarify, number one, what we're talking about and make sure that they've been tested for hepatitis, not just HIV. We do want to remember, and evidently this is a easy thing to forget even for, but I, I won't go there. Uh, anyway, uh, antigens mean that the blood test you're taking ha- identifies that there is some foreign thing in your bloodstream, which in this case is the virus. So if you have a test and it tests for antigens, then it will identify if you have the virus actively in your body, which means you're contagious. You know, that's what it boils down to. Antibodies. When you have antibodies, that's the whole purpose of vaccinations is to build up antibodies. Um, Antibodies indicate that you have been exposed at some time, but it doesn't mean necessarily that the virus is in your system. Antibody tests are different than antigen tests. Now it gets a little bit murkier when we start talking about HCV. When somebody tests positive for hepatitis C, it could mean that they are a chronic carrier of hepatitis C. They've been infected, but have resolved the infection or has been acutely infected. So if somebody tests positive for hepatitis C, we don't want them again to start getting really upset right away. Let's, let's figure out what we're dealing with. Um, they need to have a follow-up test, which is called a qualitative hepatitis C virus RNA test. And that determines whether the virus is in the blood or not. So that's, the words get really uh, confusing when we start talking about some of these different things. If you have an antibody test, it means that you've been exposed and your body's tried to fight it off. It does not tell you either way whether the virus is in your system or not. You have to have an antigen test to identify or the RNA test to determine whether the virus is in your system. Either way, we need to have counseling approaches. We want to provide reliable information. And these three sites, the Liver Foundation, the CDC, and No More Hepatitis, which is also at the CDC, there are tons of fact brochures, posters, infographics. You know, if you want to do a campaign at your facility, if you want to put stuff up on the wall, there is a ton of stuff that you can print out. Or, you know, if you want it to look really spiffy, you can send it to somewhere like, you know, one of the photo processing places, like some of the um, drugstore type places. I don't want to call out any particular names, but you can send it to a professional photography lab. Um, and they can print it out, you know, in poster size or whatever on glossy paper and make it look all spiffy. Uh, where should you put this? Well, a lot of people are not going to just randomly walk up and pick up something in the middle of the lobby that says, know the facts about um, hepatitis. You know, that may feel a little bit 
embarrassing to them. But a lot of people don't know or may want to know or may need to know. Put posters in the lobby. And remember, keep posters, if you're designing your own, like if you go to canva.com, you can design your own and again, have them professionally printed. But keep the information short and sweet and to the point um, because people don't want to read a dissertation on a poster. But you can have posters in the lobby. People are going to be sitting there waiting for their appointment, you know, counting ceiling tiles, looking around. They're probably going to read it. Reading material in your office, if especially if you are a um, practitioner that, you know, you've got multiple offices and people have to sit and wait for you like you do in the, in the physician's office, um, having that material there is helpful. Posters in the bathroom stalls. This is one of the best places to put information because you got a captive audience. So put information there and you can, a lot of times if you put information there and they have the little, just like you for, for when you're selling stuff, there are little tear offs where people can tear off a uh, strip that has a website or a phone number that they can call. A lot of people will do that uh, because they've got privacy at that point in time. So that is a great place to provide information. You can also create little short videos, host them on YouTube and embed them on your website uh, if you want to provide information that way. We need to start out when we're counseling people, just like with any other issue, uh, ensuring safety and confidentiality and establishing rapport. We're asking some pretty embarrassing questions of some people, like how many sexual partners you had, when was the last time you were tested for HIV or HBV? You know, those are pretty personal questions. And obviously you're going to want to be trauma informed and um, appropriate when you're asking these questions. They're not always appropriate to ask in every setting. So that's your agency needs to have a policy. Ideally, everybody is screened, but if you've got a client who is coming in to talk about her history of rape or sex work or trafficking or something else, you know, you really don't want to launch into that in the first meeting because that is insensitive at the very least. Anyhow, so we want to establish rapport, talk to them, get to know what's going on. You can start segueing in by discussing overlapping symptoms between maybe their depression, their fatigue, and H uh, HBV and the hepatitis viruses in order to kind of segue that. One of the ways that I like to approach talking about diagnosis is putting it out there that there are tons of different things that can cause uh, mood symptoms. And sometimes it's, you know, something that's physiological. So no amount of talk therapy is going to completely resolve the situation. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like running a car without having oil in it. Um, it. It's not going to be nearly as efficient. Uh, so I talk with people about that and we discuss overlapping symptoms and what might be the cause and the fact that a lot of these physiological causes are relatively easy to address, like hypothyroid, for example. Um, you'd be surprised at how many people develop hypothyroid later in life and don't know about it. But helping clients understand their diagnoses. First, we want to help them understand acute versus chronic because there's a lot of information out there that says you can never recover from hepatitis B. Well, you know, chronic hepatitis B right now, we don't have any treatments for, but remember 90% of people don't develop chronic hepatitis B. 90% of people who are exposed and have an, have acute hepatitis B, their body is able to clear it. 
the definition of acute is you've had it for um, less than six months. We want to ourselves be aware of the different types of hepatitis. So if a client comes in and says, oh, I've got hepat I was diagnosed with hepatitis A, and if they're really freaked out about that, we want to be able to, you know, provide them good information and help them recognize that that won't become chronic. You know, it'll probably resolve itself. You may have symptoms for, you know, up to 90 days, but it's not like hepatitis B or C. Among those who develop chronic hepatitis C or B infection, about 20% will move on to develop cirrhosis. So, and, and cirrhosis is bad news. We really want to help people try to slow down getting to that place. Um, and then, you know, once they get there, because 20 to 30% will get there, we want to help them slow the progression. Interestingly, Hepatitis does progress faster in those who are infected after the age of 40. They don't know why. It's something that you want to be aware of. Um, if your client comes in and they are, you know, 50 and tell you that they just got diagnosed, partly we don't know when they got infected. Maybe they were infected 20 years ago and they're just now getting tested. But if they know they just recently got infected, just know in the back of your mind that the progression of the disease may be more rapid in those people. Anybody who has hepatitis C or B are at an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Remember, diabetes affects the liver, the insulin, the glucose, all that kind of stuff. So when that liver's not working well, um, then, then you've potentially got an increased risk of diabetes, which is why self-care is so important. And we're going to talk about some of those interventions in a minute. Abdominal swelling occurs in a certain percentage of people with HCV um, or HBV, hepatitis C or, or B. And that's when the belly swells. And a lot of times the person may look pregnant man or woman, um, their, their belly is extremely distended, extremely hard. Um, and it, I mean, it looks in a lot of times it looks painful, um, and it is painful for a lot of people. Unfortunately, when they get to this stage, it indicates that the treatments that they were using aren't working anymore. They've progressed to a much later stage of the disease and they are, you know, really at the, at risk of liver failure. Uh, needing a liver transplant, um, things like that. Hepatic encephalopathy, try saying that a couple of times, uh, hepatic encephalopathy will occur in approximately 30 to 40% of individuals with cirrhosis if the illness becomes more severe. So not everybody who gets cirrhosis will experience hepatic encephalopathy, uh, but 30 to 40% will as the disease gets bad. And generally it kind of uh, coincides with the abdominal swelling. Why do we care? Well, because hepatic encephalopathy uh, has a lot of psychiatric and neurological manifestations, including apathy, depression, irritability, fatigue, impaired sleep-wake cycle, impaired cognition, so they start getting brain fog, have difficulty concentrating, diminished consciousness, and sometimes even loss of motor control. Um, it's a long explanation for what happens, but remember, hepatic means the liver, and encephalopathy means it, the brain. So they are developing toxic levels of chemicals within their brain. What can we do to help clients? We want to consult with the physician. You know, this is a 
physiological diagnosis that has psychological manifestation. We're going to need to help people deal with the symptoms that may be caused by hepatic encephalopathy, but we also want to help them deal with the pain that might be caused. We want to help them deal with the grief they might be dealing with, the anxiety about what's going to happen. There's a lot of mental health stuff that goes along with it, but there's also the physical health and the physical and physiological interventions are going to differ for every person, which is why it's important to have a multidisciplinary team. For most cases of chronic viral hepatitis, medication can slow the progression or cure the disease. You know, remember um, hepatitis C, they have found some medications that will cure it. Now, these medications that they take are not devoid of side effects. And it is really important that patients be braced for the potential side effects that they might experience, um, including nausea and fatigue and some of those things. And to communicate openly about those because we don't want them taking half a course of their medication and then stopping because then you start to develop drug-resistant strains. Um, so it's really important that they are aware of medications that exist, the side effects of those medications, and how to deal with those side effects. They need to be screened for liver cancer on an annual basis. It's a blood test. It's not, I mean, sometimes you can go in for an MRI or something, but there are blood tests that can be used for a simple screen. They should avoid or limit alcohol and smoking since both cause a lot of stress to the liver. You know, there's a lot of toxins in that stuff. They need to eat a healthy diet with lots of vegetables. That sounds, you know, great and all. Fried and greasy foods, anything that's high in fat, tends to be really hard on the liver. So we want to encourage them to, you know, if their doctor recommends it, um, do as much as they can to treat their liver with tender loving care. They need to control their blood sugar to prevent or control their diabetes and control their weight um, goes along with that. The doctor is going to be the one, obviously, or the registered dietitian who will recommend to them how to control their blood sugar, whether they need to eat small meals throughout the day or they need insulin or whatever it is that they need. However, educating them in counseling that controlling their blood sugar can help prevent, you know, damage to the liver and, you know, improve their outcome. That's something we can do. Sodium is also hard on the body. So it's recommended that most people limit their salt intake to less than 2,000 milligrams per day, which is about a teaspoon of salt. And that includes the salt that's in all the prepared foods and everything else. They need to maintain a healthy weight, not only to prevent diabetes, but also to prevent a fatty liver. When people become overweight, interestingly enough, the liver also tends to get fat. They've shown that as people lose weight, if they lose it healthfully, they also lose weight from their liver. They lose fat from their liver. So that's something that is definitely a reversible condition, at least to a large extent. Some studies have shown that drinking coffee actually helps the liver. Now, I'm obviously, again, this is not something I'm going to recommend to people, but I just thought it was interesting to put out there so you, you knew that, you know, there is some literature that indicates that coffee may have a protective factor. Individuals with chronic hepatitis who do not have cirrhosis can often take your over-the-counter pain relievers like acetaminophen, aspirin, or NSAIDs at low or standard recommended doses. But if they have 
hepatitis and cirrhosis, a lot of times they are not able to take those things because those medications are so hard on the liver. I mean, we know that Tylenol, uh, sorry, acetaminophen is super duper hard on the liver and you can very easily overdose on alcohol and cause, um, liver toxicity. Those with chronic hepatitis are often also told to avoid taking iron supplements or a daily multivitamin that contains iron because it, again, with that liver's not functioning well, iron can build up there and become toxic. Look at the nutrition information on your food. You'll be surprised at how many different foods like cereal and, and breads, you know, pretty much any of your prepared foods have iron added to them already. And interestingly, vitamin D deficiency is common with both hepatitis C infection as well as depression. We know that low vitamin D is associated with increases in depressed mood, but we're also seeing that people who have chronic hepatitis also have low vitamin D. So to address some of those issues of sleep disturbances and fatigue and apathy, uh, vitamin D monitoring is important. Uh, this is another one of those things their physician needs to do because not everybody is going to be able to make enough from sunlight and we don't want people to start taking mega doses of anything because that is hard on your liver. You know, that's something between them and their medical. So how do we counsel readiness? Uh, we want to look at where they're at in terms of their willingness to get tested and then where they're at in terms of their willingness to start doing something. Uh, Pre-contemplation, the person is not even willing to talk about getting tested or not willing to talk about making behavioral changes. Contemplation, they realize that they may be at risk of getting hepatitis or they may have hepatitis but they're not ready to get tested or they're not ready to start taking medications for it yet. Um, maybe they're asymptomatic. They've got it, but they're asymptomatic. So they're like, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Leave me alone. Preparation is when they start considering, you know, for testing, they're figuring out where they could go to get tested for treatment. They're looking at the different medications that are available in the action phase. That's when they are committing to getting tested. You know, they say, okay, you know, I'm, I've got an appointment at two o'clock today and, or they have decided to take active steps to preventing or treating the disease, uh, the, the virus that is out there. And then maintenance involves either continuing the prevention activities if they don't have it and, or, um, engaging in self-care activities, slow the spread. For testing or treatment, we want to enhance motivation by addressing as many different aspects of it as possible. Physically, if you get tested, um, you know, you might find out that you've got hepatitis and that there are medications out there that you could take that would reduce your symptoms, uh, that would make you start feeling better. So that may be one physical motivation to do it. It also, well, we'll get that. Affectively, sometimes people are anxious about getting the test and once they have it, then they know what they're dealing with and they can plan, um, with treatment, you know, if some of their symptoms are, you know, apathy, fatigue, that sort of thing, then that's, those are physical symptoms of hepatitis. So they might start feeling better mood wise. Um, if they get tested, they find out that they've got it or whatever, they start taking steps to to address it. They also may feel less hopeless and helpless when we're counseling them. If we 
you know, regularly educate them and send out that message of hope that a long, high quality life is, is possible. This is not an immediate death sentence. Cognitively, if they get tested, it will provide direction for, you know, what they need to do, how they need to behave. If they don't have it and, you know, whatever, then okay, fine. They can choose how they're going to behave from that point. If they find they do have it, okay, fine. But that's also going to influence how they interact with other people, how they interact with their kids, etc. It'll provide clarity about things that they need to do to keep themselves safe as well as to keep the ones they love safe. And environmental and relational motivation, by getting tested, they will find out if they're at risk of putting anybody else at risk. And if they are, They'll learn how to mitigate that risk so they don't infect or, or make ill anyone that's around them. So those are, you know, ways that we can really talk about increasing motivation, the benefits to getting tested, sending out that message of hope that there's a lot of things that you can do. So, you know, you keep yourself safe, you keep your family safe, and you have a rightful life. Two techniques from motivational interviewing that I just wanted to re remind you guys of. ORS stands for open-ended questions. You know, tell me what you know about hepatitis or what do you think uh, the chances are that you might have hepatitis. Affirmation, you know, we want to affirm what they're feeling, what they're saying. Reflection, that goes without saying. And then summarizing, you know, pulling it all together that, you know, they're anxious about potentially getting tested because they're afraid they might have it and they're not sure which direction to go. You know, pull that all together in that summary statement. Counseling 101. Frames is another technique in motivational interviewing. Feedback. Provide feedback about a person's risk. If you're going through all the checklists and they have really low risk of having contracted hepatitis, we want to provide that feedback. We can't say it's no risk because there's always a risk that they could have contracted it, but we want to provide that feedback. If they're at high risk, we want to provide that too, but let them know that there are options. Responsibility for taking action is placed on their shoulders. It's like, okay, you have the information now. You can make an educated decision about whether you want to get tested, whether you want to start treatment or not. We can provide advice, and I know as counselors we're not supposed to, but that's just part of the acronym. Uh, provide a menu of options. If you get tested, and if you test positive, and if it's a chronic condition, you know, those are, those are three big ifs there. Um, so if, you know, it gets to the point where you find out you've got chronic viral hepatitis, let's look at the options you have for dealing with it, what tre treatments are out there, and what does life look like. Likewise, if you don't have it, what options are out there to help you prevent, help keep yourself safe? Then provide empathy and support. So feedback, responsibility, advice, menu of options, empathy, and support. Developing a prevention plan is also important, even if they've got it. And this is primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention, but you don't need to know that. What's important? We want to help them prevent themselves and loved ones from getting infected in the first place. As parents, you know, we're educating our children about how to avoid getting sick. You know, we want to have that education for primary prevention. We want to help them pre plan uh, for preventing additional infections or the development of confounding issues if they already have hepatitis. So, okay, if you have it, all right, but how can you protect yourself? Because the more viruses, the more infections you pile on, the more you're taxing your immune system and the harder it's going to be for you to, you know, cope with the viral stresses on your body. So how can you 
live optimal. And the third type of prevention is preventing other people from getting infected. If the person figures out that, yeah, you know, I do have the infection, how can I prevent my loved ones from getting it? You know, that, that those are three different types of prevention that we may need to go over. Encourage them to build support system. We need to educate uh, about prevention. And in order to reduce stigma, we need to talk in the community about hepatitis and spread that message of hope. If you get tested, if you're positive, there are so many options now that, you know, you are really able to prevent uh unnecessarily early death if you engage in um, effective treatment. Support groups are really helpful if your agency can uh, start developing them for the patient, you know, for and for the family because families are dealing with, you know, this fear of living with somebody with hepatitis. They're also dealing with the grief about potentially losing this person. We need to provide support and there need to be support groups at each stage when somebody is newly diagnosed there needs to be support groups for the patient and then another one for the family when there's chronic illness and support groups for the patient and then another one for the family if the condition becomes terminal if it just progresses to the point where they need a liver transplant or they've got liver cancer Encourage the development of synchronous support groups in your community. You notice I quit saying face-to-face. Synchronous means everybody's there at the same time, even if it's a Zoom meeting. Um, Hospitals, churches, libraries, those are all places that you can potentially host them in a brick-and-mortar building, but you can also do them virtually. And then online support groups may be asynchronous, like message boards and the like. Case management. Disease and treatment, and I know we're running short on time here, so I'm going to pick up the pace. Uh, Physically, we want to help people address pain management. We want to help them address lost wages and any disability income they may be entitled to because the fatigue, the lethargy, especially if it starts to progress and they have the abdominal swelling and, and other things, there may be a lot of pain, a lot of cognitive problems, so they may have to start getting Social Security disability. Nutrition, medication uh, maintenance, and that's you know making sure that they're getting the medications that they need. These hepatitis medications are not cheap. Look for patient assistance programs to help your clients. Encourage them. There's the clinical trials link I was looking for. To look for clinical trials if they are not getting relief from the typical treatment. Affectively, there are going to be issues of anger, anxiety, depression, grief, and brain fog and and difficulty concentrating that we may have to help them deal with. Environmentally, some people will have issues with housing. Um, You know, if they lose their job because they can't work and then they lose their house, you know, we need to be aware. uh, All of those Maslow needs. Stigma and discrimination, we need to help educate the community and advocate uh, for the reduction of stigma about hepatitis. And we want to enhance support for both the individual and their significant others. Hepatitis impacts millions of people physically, affectively, cognitively, financially, and interpersonally. Several symptoms of hepatitis overlap with that of depression or cognitive impairment, and they can include fatigue, difficulty concentrating, loss of appetite, dark colored urine if they're dehydrated, and achiness, which sometimes comes out as joint pain. Hepatitis, like other bloodborne pathogens, carries a stigma and is highly contagious, but it's also 
you know, highly treatable. We may not be able to completely cure some forms of it yet, but we can really slow that progression and, you know, get a harness on that bad boy. Clinicians have an obligation to educate the public about hepatitis, to assist in destigmatization, and advocate for health prevention activities in their community. Counseling should focus on where the person is in terms of whether they're ready for testing or treatment and their level of readiness for change. And our goals should be to reduce risk of infection or complication or infecting others, improve health literacy regarding hepatitis, encourage social support, and assist the person in connecting with any needed biopsychosocial. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.